0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's weekly dive beyond the clickbait to explore the fascinating and contested world of media.
0: I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. On this episode, we consider politically opinionated broadcast news in the UK.
1: With the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson joining its right-of-centre lineup, inevitably we examine this issue through the prism of GB News, who Ofcom recently found twice breached due impartiality rules, including when two Tory MPs interviewed the Tory
0: Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. Should there be a space in British media for broadcasting without balance? We consider that and the role of the regulator.
1: Don't forget to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And Media Confidential is on Extra Twitter. We are at MediaConfPod, all one word. Now, Lionel, I'm sitting next door to an
0: empty chair where
1: you should be because you're once again not in London. Um,
0: Where are you? I'm in New York City, just opposite uh, Central Park. Alan, because I've been doing this broadcast, haven't been able to do my early morning run, Um, but I'm off uh, a little later to join some uh, people talking about the state of the world. Well, I
1: I hope you're planting lots of trees to make up for your air miles um, because you've been traveling a lot recently. Um, Before we get going, can I thank the Marketing Gurus for creating a way to enjoy prospects journalism for a full month absolutely free? Take advantage of the new one-month free trial offer and you can read all the magazine's best long reads, commentary and cultural criticism with new writing added daily to our website as well as the entire 28-year archive. Sign up now at subscribe.prospectmagazine.co.uk slash media conf pod. Boris Johnson, the villain of the COVID inquiry to date and the hero of Nadine Doris' political Who Done it uh, which is out this week, has announced he's going to be a presenter on, you guessed it, GB News.
0: I'm going to be giving this remarkable new TV channel my unvarnished views on everything from Russia, China, the war in Ukraine, how we meet all those challenges to the huge opportunities that lie ahead for us, why I think our best days are yet to come, and why, on the whole, the people of the world want to see more global Britain, not less. He'll be joining a cast which includes Esther McVeigh and her husband Philip Davis, Sir Jacob Brees-Mogg, Nigel Farage, Michael Portillo, Lee Anderson, and, until recently, Diana Davison. Is there something all these people have in common, Larnot? Now, it's funny you should mention that all of them are, were, or are said to want to be Conservative MPs. And we shouldn't forget Arlene Foster of the DUP or Richard Tice, leader of the pro-Brexit Reform Party.
1: Well, it's nice work if you can get it. Sir so Jacob's Register of Interest, which I looked at yesterday, shows him to be earning around £30,000 a month for presenting four shows a week. That's around 360000 a year on top of his MP salary. So, Johnson's going to be, if
0: nothing else, handsomely rewarded. Meanwhile, former Home Secretary Preeti Patel used a speech at the Conservative Party conference to lash out at Tory-hating Brexit bashers free speech deniers at the BBC and the so-called mainstream media at the same time as describing GB News, the newest, most successful, dynamic, no-nonsense news station, and the defenders of free speech.
1: And another Tory Prime Minister, former Tory Prime Minister, Liz Truss, remember her, called for, quotes, more GB News, quotes to challenge the orthodoxy broadcasting common sense and transforming our media landscape so long may it continue that's what she said
0: The Economist magazine recently described GB News as the conservative right speaking unto itself which is very nice for the conservative right but is it actually legal and does it actually matter
1: We'll tackle the first question in a second with a couple of distinguished guests As to whether it matters, its audience is steadily growing, both on its own platform, about 3 million viewers a month, which is about a quarter of the BBC's news channel, but arguably more important on social media, where controversial clips reach millions
0: more. But more than its current reach is the question of whether Britain wants or needs to have a TV channel that seems to be going down the route of Fox News in America. Someone coined the word angertainment for that kind of a highly polarised mix of news and comment. As to the legality, well, its critics argue
1: that a TV license in the UK comes with obligations to due impartiality. And the addition of Boris Johnson to a lineup of Tories past and present, as well as the former DUP leader and prominent Brexit campaigners, seems to make a mockery of any aspirations
0: to balance. Now, the channel is supposedly regulated by the media regulator, Ofcom in the news this week, as it also takes on the burden of regulating online media. And while they've recently launched a number of inquiries into GB News, critics say it's far too little, too late. One of those
1: critics, SNP MP John Nicholson, himself a former broadcaster, recently took aim at Ofcom during a committee hearing in the Commons for its failure to take any serious action over GB News. Since uh, Ofcom has declined to field anyone to speak to us today, we can hear its public policy director, Kate Davis, responding to Nicholson back in July about what he sees as the lack of due impartiality in Jacob Rees-Mogg's programme on GB News.
2: Every single day, he uh, churns out the same old right-wing pro-Brexit stuff. What he's doing is blurring uh, news presenting and commentary. He does that every single day of the week. Your rules, I read out your rules to you, I won't do it again, they're very explicit. It has to be exceptional circumstances for an MP to do interviews. He interviews every single day of the week. He's breaching your rules. It's not a one-off, it's every day. Why don't you act to stop this?
3: If the programme constitutes a news programme, that is the rule. If it constitutes a current affairs programme, we look at it differently. This is we dancing are... the head of a
2: pin, because uh, as a former news presenter myself, I know that news programmes often contain longer format interviews, which could become current affairs programmes. I used to present BBC Breakfast. I would do long interviews every day, but it wasn't a current affairs programme. It was like Mr Mogg's programme, a news programme. He is presenting a news programme, not a current affairs programme. He breaches your rules.
3: I don't have anything further to say. I've been clear on how we take our...
1: Okay. We'll speak to another of Ofcom's critics, media professor Steve Barnett, in a moment. But first we're joined by David Elstein, a veteran broadcaster and commentator who's watched the growth of GB News with interest and, it's fair to say, some approval, I think. But we'll check with him uh, in a second.
0: David was a BBC producer before being Director of Programming at Thames TV, Head of Programming at B Sky B as well as launching Channel 5 and running a number of independent production companies and chairing Open Democracy. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you, Alan. Um,
1: David, you know better than most that Britain has traditionally uh, operated on a system where we have an opinionated press and strictly unopinionated broadcasters. Do you welcome the advent of opinionated TV?
3: Well, uh, Alan, this has got a bit of a history. and I spent virtually all my career, running regulated channels, current affairs programs, news output, TV stations. But that was in a period of severely restricted spectrum. In other words, where everything had to be granted by government, it was terrestrial uh, frequencies, and regulation was part of the deal, because it was scarce. It had to be balanced and regulated and quite carefully regulated. I'm very used to it. I've spent 40 <laughs> years doing it. Ever since the advent of Sky, the rules of the game have started to soften. Uh, on Sky today, you can get 20 news channels, uh, most of them from abroad, not just CNN, NBC, Bloomberg, but AruRang, Arise, NHK, France 24, Euro News, etc., To expect a UK regulator to apply exactly the same rules to all of these broadcasters is just not realistic. And that's why when Ofcom applies its definition of not impartiality, but due impartiality, what that means is that impartiality, which is appropriate to the channel and its audience... So for instance, Fox News was broadcast uh, on Sky for many years before it went away because it was not profitable. It was barely noticed uh, and it was barely objected to. It regularly received Ofcom complaints, but those are rarely to do with its news content, more to do with its sponsored content. So I'm relaxed about the advent of so-called opinionated TV. I don't particularly watch talk TV or GB News, but I'm not fussed about their being there. And I do think that Ofcom and the rest of the media worry about it too much.
0: David, you're not a big fan of Ofcom. Uh, Why not?
3: Well, I I used to be quite impressed by their ability to uh, regulate the regulated channels. And I was one of the few people who would read the monthly Ofcom uh, bulletin on complaints. Uh, you know, get a life, you might say. Uh, get prospect, you might say. But in those days, the Ofcom bulletin was the thing to read. I've been invited to apply to join the Ofcom board a few times. Actually, last time, last year, uh, when I was interviewed and amusingly rejected. Um, <laughs> I've... I've be- <laughs> Given that I know vastly more about the regulation of content than any of the people who are interviewing me, it was one of those things. But I've been a critic of Ofcom for its failure to protect public service broadcasting, not for its, the way it regulates content, but for an abject failure. Over, and it was a failure built into its invention in 2003, and uh, Ofcom has been a huge disappointment in that respect. More recently, I've come to think that even as a regulator of content, it fancies itself too much and is ineffective. I mean, within a few months of when I might have joined the board of Ofcom, I would have had to resign because of a Channel 4 programme, which I wrote to them about. I think I sent them a 20-page letter listing dozens of inaccuracies and outright lies. And they just waved it through and said nothing to see here. And I, at that point, realized that Ofcom was not a serious content regulator either.
1: You say you don't watch a great deal of GB News, but you must be aware of the controversy around it. Do you think it's working within the rules and within
4: the law?
3: For the most part, yes. Uh, Obviously, uh, with, I think, 15 open investigations by Ofcom, There's an open question as to whether it's transgressed, but whatever it does, these transgressions are minor. I think GB News's biggest uh, mistake was to get an audience, Uh, an audience sometimes larger than Sky News, sometimes even larger than BBC News. And that really has annoyed the establishment. Why should some upstart right wing opinionated channel get more viewers than us? What's
0: wrong with Britain? I'm sympathetic to that view, David, but struggling to understand how it can be compliant if all its political presenters are overwhelmingly drawn from the ranks of the Conservative Party and Brexit parties.
3: That's because you don't understand the concept of due impartiality. Due means that which is appropriate to its audience. Its audience is self-selecting. Therefore, that's what they want to see. If you watch NBC News its coverage of Brexit is ludicrous. If you watch CNN, its coverage of Brexit is ludicrous. If you watch Bloomberg. But, you know, uh, what do you expect from a broadcaster emanating from New York? So uh, Ofcom needs to take a relaxed view of the opinionatedness and look at actual offence if it causes offence.
0: So we're looking, David, we're looking at really Fox TV in the UK then.
3: It's not really Fox. I mean, uh, Fox is outlandish. Uh, I mean, you're in New York. If you ever bother to watch it, I'm sure you just go. You do. Well, you're you, you, careful. Your brain may be fuddled by the time we finish. Uh, it's but still working, David. Don't worry. <laughs> Good. Look, we can all look at Fox or indeed CNN, which is the mirror image of Fox, and say, what on earth is all this nonsense about? But there's an audience for it because American viewers are very polarised. They want that kind of red meat stuff, be it blue or red. Uh, So uh, over here, I mean, GB News is really mild by comparison with Fox. Uh, And if you look at its real history, Angelos uh, Frankopoulos, the managing director, he ran Sky News in Australia for many years. Sky News, this is not the... Uh, Murdoch owned Sky News, pre-Murdoch, um, was raucous, outspoken. Loads of ex-politicians, ex-prime ministers, people have fallen out with their parties, turned up, did a stint, got fired, went and did something else. And it was noisy and, like most Australians, very outspoken. The only one exception I would make is the new manager of Spurs, who is a very, very mild-mannered man, man <laughs> but a very effective one. But there is a, 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 an issue here, which is a cultural one. This is noisy, vigorous, outspoken, more entertainment than current affairs, but it has a place in the world. I don't have any objection to it being there. And I do have an objection to Newsnight, uh, putting together a panel to discuss GB News and having three of the four members of the panel calling for it to be closed down. I mean, honestly, what what is all this? I mean, Newsnight maybe should be closed down after a programme like that. Um, uh, David,
1: I, I, I think I can follow your argument that you say this doesn't particularly bother you, that, that all these presenters are drawn almost exclusively from the ranks of the Tory and Brexit party because they're they're reaching an audience. But that's not what the law says, is it? The law says that you can't have, you have to exclude all expressions of the views of opinions of the person providing the service. So I can see that you may be saying the law should be different, but that's not what the law says at the the moment.
3: Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's not provided personally by Paul Marshall. Uh, He's a funder. Uh, no, but
1: Jacob Rees-Mogg and not, Lee Anderson and he's, he's Philip not, Davis I mean, no, and you're, Esther McVeigh.
3: You're, you're misreading the, the law. The law is the ownership of the channel. It's not to do with the actual presenters. You can have any presenters you like. So when I was at ITV, for instance, uh, we weren't allowed to have Dora Gateskill on a program because she was a director of one of the ITV companies, and she had strong political views. I mean, it was mildly ludicrous, but that was the law. There's nothing to stop uh, MPs turning up, or politicians. When Boris Johnson was presenting Have I Got News For You, uh, nobody was saying that he owned the BBC. He was just a guest of the BBC. Likewise, with Jacob Rees-Mogg, Esther McVeigh, uh, Philip Davis, etc., Lee Anderson... Uh, Look, if there is some broadcaster who wants to provide uh, out-of-pocket expenses to Tory MPs or ex-Tory MPs, do I have a problem with that? Actually, no. No.
1: I'm just going to read you the the Ofcom code. It says, alternative viewpoints must be adequately represented either in the programme or in a series of programmes taken as a whole. Additionally, presenters, not the owners, presenters, must not use the advantage of regular appearances to promote their views in a way which compromises the requirement for due impartiality?
3: Well, it's entirely up to Ofcom to decide whether they've compromised uh, the requirements. I mean, are they presenting their views or are they presenting a programme? Are they doing party political broadcasts or are they doing discussions within the Conservative Party? I don't have a problem with any of that. And if Ofcom chooses to wave a yellow or indeed a red card, it will just prove that Ofcom is an entirely pointless organisation.
0: Do you think it would have been a good idea if Paul Dacre, the long-time ex-editor of the Daily Mail, took over Ofcom as chair? Uh,
3: heaven forbid. Um, no, look, uh, Mike, Michael Grade is a very experienced broadcaster. I'm slightly surprised he would want to run Ofcom because, especially with the online safety bill and all the new rules that are coming in that Ofcom is completely ill-equipped to uh, manage. But he would be fine. Paul would have been a disaster.
1: If you'd got the job at Ofcom, David, what would your attitude have been to climate change deniers presenting programmes?
3: So long as it's explained that they're climate change deniers, that's fine. Uh, Climate change denial is not at the moment illegal. Uh, Holocaust denial is. uh, Outright racism is. And you can't do that. So having Nigel Lawson as he then was uh, turning up on occasional uh, BBC programmes, I think was quite helpful because it forces you to sharpen your view. Actually, what is, you've, you've, what you've is wrong with his argument?
1: You've just complained that Ofcom didn't take inaccuracies on Channel 4s here. Not so inaccuracies, it, lies. If people are saying inaccurate lies about climate change. Why is that different?
3: Lies is, is not the same. Outright lies, statements of clearly provable untruths. With Nigel, he was offering his view of the facts. Now, it was a highly contestable view of the facts, but that was his view. He wasn't trying to put out a piece of propaganda and being treated as a truth-sayer, he was being treated as a participant in a debate. And I think there is a slight difference between those two positions.
1: Final question from, from me, David. Mm. Uh, um, I mean, the reality is that rich people, the sort of people who can afford to lose 30 million a year on a, a, a channel like this, are unlikely to uh, want to promote left-wing views. So uh, so <laughs> uh, the logic of your position is you're relaxed about rich people coming along and, and starting up TV channels, but that that means we're going to have a much more right-wing media, isn't its is, is, Are you relaxed about that?
3: Well, you say that. Look, the Scott Trust has got a billion pounds of assets, nothing's stopping the Scott Trust launching a, a TV station. My feeling is that GP News will struggle to break even and it will probably migrate to online only more for cost reasons than for Ofcom reasons in the next two or three years because it's got a very strong online following. Look, uh, the published press is dominated by right-wing people uh, and they spend uh, lots of money supporting Uh, newspapers. But Rupert Murdoch spent hundreds of millions of pounds supporting the Times during the period when it was losing money. Was it a right-wing newspaper? I would have said it's more centrist right. It's not the Daily Telegraph. It's not the Daily Mail. He launched Sky News, a loss-making proposition along with the rest of Sky. At one point, uh, Sky was losing £500 million a year. He eventually sold it, or his half share of it, for nearly £10 billion. So was it an indulgence or an investment?
1: Thank you, David, so much for coming along and joining us. Pleasure. Of course, we should say that some GB News stars, I'm thinking of Dan uh, Wooten, uh, the former actor, Lawrence Fox. Uh, have been suspended after Fox's lewd language about um, like there's no no way of getting around this, shagging someone. I don't know what you think, Lionel. I don't know whether that was uh, a worry because Ofcom couldn't really ignore this or was GB News uh, owner Paul Marshall uh, worried that this might get in the way of his bid to buy the Daily Telegraph?
0: Well, I think the owner, uh, Paul Marshall, hedge fund owner, he had to act um, irrespective of any interest that he he looks as though he does have in buying the Daily Telegraph because Wooten and Fox were so out of line.
1: And we we should mention that, that Ofcom has now, some would say belatedly, got no fewer than 14 open investigations for assorted offences that um, include impartiality, causing offence, fairness and privacy and, and more. What do you think of the penalties that Ofcom has up its sleeve, Lionel?
0: Well, Alan, when you were talking about those um contracts for the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson in terms of what they can earn per month. It looks to me as though some of these fines are fairly uh, mild slap on the wrists.
1: You'd think a a Jacob Rees-Mogg £360,000 fine, one JRM would be an appropriate fine for some of these breaches.
0: I think it's a rather good idea to um, have a new category of fines. It's called the uh, JRM, the super JRM. But actually, the serious point is, some financial penalty but what you really want is a robust enforcement with language that people find convincing. Coming up another perspective
1: on this issue of political broadcast news in the UK and then we'll discuss if a container to own the Telegraph has disappeared after a big appointment in the United States.
0: This episode has been sponsored by the award-winning management consulting firm Q5. Q5 is all about good organizational health. Q5 work with their clients to ensure they optimize their organizational strategy, their structure, and their culture so that they can achieve all their goals. From strategic conundrums to operational gripes, Q5 combine the art and science of organizational health to address challenges. And Q5 works with a range of organizations, those at the top of their game, and with those who are in turnaround mode. If you want to know more about how Q5 can help your organization improve and excel, please visit www.q5partners.com. Plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: Calm. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rusbridger and Lionel Barber. And today we're discussing politically opinionated broadcasting and broadcast news in the UK and its regulation. And in particular, GB News, which has been sanctioned four times for various things by the regulator Ofcom, with 14 more investigations, count them into the broadcaster currently. Now, earlier we heard from David Elstein, but some MPs don't share his relaxed view of Ofcom and GB News. Tory MP Caroline Noakes and former Sky News political editor Adam Bolton have both called for the channel to be taken off air. And here's the SNP's John Nicholson again in the DCMS Select Committee questioning Ofcom about their sanction of the broadcaster for a lack of impartiality when Tory MPs Esther McVeigh and Philip Davis interviewed Conservative Chancellor
2: Jeremy Hunt in March. We've just lost all sight of objective journalism and it's your guys' job to enforce the rules and you're not doing it. And we're going to proceed down a route till we end up with awful American-style ranting at the camera, we're already seeing
0: it, all masquerading as news. Now, to be fair to Ofcom, that was one of the occasions when they found against GB News. But the sanction, none. Ofcom did not suggest any penalty and said the programme did not breach the rules on politicians presenting news programmes, as this programme was classed as current affairs. GB News said Ofcom's definition of impartiality was imprecise.
1: So we're joined now by Professor Steve Barnett, who's Professor of Communications at the University of Westminster, established writer, broadcaster, uh, and he specialises in media policy and regulation. Welcome, Steve.
4: Very pleased to be here.
1: Perhaps we can begin, Steve, if you could explain the law governing impartiality and that, that word which pokes its nose in, due impartiality.
4: Yeah, so the the, the law is, is actually very clear, and it was uh, part of the 2003 Communications Act, sections 319 and 320, which say specifically that um, broadcast programs, TV and radio, licensed by Ofcom, uh, should be broadcast with due impartiality. So they use the word due in the Act, but then Ofcom itself interprets that Act of Parliament through its own code and has Section 5 of the Ofcom Code, deals specifically with impartiality. uh, And it it actually says, Rule 512 of Ofcom's Code says that uh, programmes must have an appropriately wide range of significant views in programmes dealing with matters of political and industrial controversy. So yes, there is the word due, but the rule is perfectly clear. uh, And in any service that's licensed by Ofcom, those rules have to be followed.
0: So is there any doubt, Steve, that GBN is actually bound by this uh, legislation?
4: No doubt whatsoever. Every broadcaster that is licensed by Ofcom and GB News is licensed by Ofcom must follow these rules. Now, it is true to say that the word due allows some flexibility to Ofcom. Uh, in my view, this is a flexibility that has been in- interpreted beyond the bounds of what Parliament I- intended. But if you, if I give you just one example, Fox News, the original Fox News, as is now broadcast in the United States, was licensed by Ofcom. It did broadcast in the UK for 15 years until the Murdochs themselves took the decision to take it off air.
1: So that's what we've just heard from David Elstein. So if, yep. first, there are a couple of points that he made that I'd like to... But one, he's, he says that the impartiality requirement is on the, the owner of the channel, not the presenters. Uh, I'd like you to respond to that. And, and secondly, when we said to him, look, 95% of the presenters are identifiably from the Conservative Party or Brexit parties or unionist parties, he said, well, that's OK, because that's within due. The audience know where they come from, and, and they expect that. What, what's your response no, to with that?
4: The, with, with all due respect to David, I'm afraid that's nonsense. I mean, I mean, the, the, the point about impartiality and Ofcom's own rules is that you have to have an appropriately wide range of views on any programme. And it's quite obvious you only have to watch half an hour of GB News to see that even if they do try and offer a different perspective or a different argument, it's dismissed, it's treated with contempt. So the, the the idea that it's okay because the audience knows where it's coming from, that is absolutely not what the law of this country is. Now, you could argue that perhaps the law should be changed, but it's quite clear that that is the law, and Ofcom's own code makes it quite clear that quite a lot of GB News's output is breaking its own code, but I'm afraid it's sitting on its hands and doing very little.
0: Well, why is it sitting on its hands, Steve? Why has Ofcom been so slow to act, react?
4: Well, that's a, it's a really interesting question. Uh, and I, I think it's partly um, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of Ofcom, and you hear it from Dame Melody, Melanie Dawes, the, the, the chief executive, is the emphasis on freedom of expression, allowing a diverse range of opinions. Now, we all want to embrace Article 10 of the European Convention, freedom of expression. Of course, it's very important. The idea that this is somehow antithetical, it's sort of the opposite of impartiality, is simply not true. And there is a sense within Ofcom, certainly until very recently, there's been a couple of recent judgments where it's sort of looking like it might have sort of be changing tack but certainly until very recently it's as if they've been imbibing this sort of culture wars rhetoric that the sort of post-Brexit rhetoric that the mainstream media are kind of a bit lefty a bit metropolitan elitey and that here we have a different kind of voice, a different kind of perspective, which needs to be allowed to, to flourish. And I think this is the kind of philosophy they're coming from. And they're trying to fit that philosophy into the existing legal framework. And it just doesn't work. And what worries me is that you've obviously got a chair in Ofcom, Michael Grade, who is a conservative. He can sits on the conservative benches. He 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 did. He did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's well, become a cross Yes, other, he has, yeah. because he had to. But yeah. I, I think we know where he's coming from politically. <laughs> Not least because apparently he, he sort of said when Lawrence Fox was once on Question Time, he, he said something like, there is someone who speaks for us. That's how he was quoted in, uh, in, in The Telegraph, I think it was. So you, you actually have uh, someone at the top of Ofcom, the chair, Not Paul Dacre, who apparently Johnson wanted to put in in, in charge, but frankly, not much different politically, in my view. And you've got a CEO who is talking about freedom of expression as if this trumps everything else and is somehow makes impartiality more difficult to implement when, in fact, the two are perfectly compatible.
3: You've
1: written that you think GB News is a, a threat to democracy. That, that's overstating
4: it a bit, isn't it? I really don't think it is. And uh, I'm I'm glad you brought that up Alan because you only have to look at what Fox News has done in America. And I think that's that's the kind of that's the angle that I think you, you we all really need to focus on. In the 1980s America had a similar system of impartiality. It was called the fairness doctrine. And in the 1980s under Reagan it was abolished. And that basically allowed opinion channels to flourish. And that was the basis of where Fox News came from. And what you have now is a channel that is openly a platform for conspiracy theorists, for white nationalists, um, for a, a lot of people whose views bear no relation to reality. And that is where Donald Trump came from. Donald Trump was effectively a creation of Fox News. And there are a lot of people who will say in the States, people who've studied this much more carefully than I have, that had it not been for the two million people a day who watch Fox News in prime time, Trump would not have been able to be elected. And he used that as, as his platform, partly through no one questioning the kind of nonsense that he was coming out with, the conspiracy theorists, the lost election, and that there is a direct line from the people on Fox News who were enabling his conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, and that led directly to the insurrection on the 6th of January 2021. And that, to me, is the danger. That is the danger to democracy. And we hear now that you know Trump might be in line for re-election in 2024. The things that he's talking about, the kind of things he's talking about enacting, I think we would all regard as dangerous to democracy. So, I do think that you can draw a line from not implementing these our legacy laws properly to the threat of both extreme right and extreme left-wing views being given more prominence on important platforms that are trusted.
0: Steve, you mentioned uh, legacy laws. What is the point of the due impartiality clause for TV? I mean, do you not think it, it perhaps needs revisiting? Is it a bit too quaint and old fashioned?
4: No, I, I, I and I completely get where that question's coming from, Lionel. But uh, and, and I understand yeah, 20 years ago, we didn't have the proliferation of, of, of online sites that we have now. I would argue that actually that makes these laws even more important than they were 20 years ago. And that's partly because if you look at the, the, the trust figures for the media in this country, broadcast media are by far the most trusted And I'm not just talking about the BBC. I'm talking about ITN, about Sky, Channel 4 News, etc. They're they're the outlets that people trust. People are actually really quite sceptical of of social media, despite the fact that we're seeing uh, that the Ofcom figures suggest that that more younger people in particular are getting their news from social media. So this is the medium that people trust. And as soon as you undermine the laws that actually create that trust – I think you're then in danger of letting that trust slide. And in the end, what you get is what you have in the States, is this extreme polarization. You have this cynicism about the so-called MSM, the mainstream media, which doesn't yet exist in this country. And everyone exists in their own filter bubble. And that's where the, the divisiveness, the polarisation, the extremities come from, which I do believe, going back to what I said before, are a potential threat to democracy.
1: Sadly, um, GB News, the blushing violets that they are, wouldn't put anybody up to appear on this podcast, and, and nor would Ofcom, which surprised me. Uh, but you've mentioned their chief executive, Melanie Dawes, and we have got a clip of her uh, appearing before a House of Commons Select Committee in March, and this is what she said
5: We are always thinking about freedom of expression here and do not want to see just a single kind of mono-cultural or mono-representation of views on British TV. And I think when you compare what you get in the UK with what you see in America, which is unregulated, it is very, very different.
4: Steve, what struck you about that statement? I think it's extraordinary that the chief executive of Ofcom should talk about a mono-representation of views in relation to impartiality. Because actually, it's the complete opposite. The point about impartiality is not that you only have one perspective. It's that you actually have multiple perspectives vying for each other, allowing people to make up their own minds. So you don't invite me on and say, I just want to hear your opinion. And we're going to get someone on else someone else on who thinks the same as you. And we'll have a, a whole string of people who say the same thing as you. What you do is you say, as you have on this podcast, we're going to have someone who, like you, and then we're going to have someone who disagrees with you and we'll let people who are listening make up their own mind. That is the essence. That is, that is the logic, the philosophy behind the impartiality framework. And it appears that Ofcom's own chief executive just does not understand that, which I find extraordinary.
0: I wonder whether Ofcom can truly be regarded as independent after Boris Johnson's efforts to install Paul Dacre not just once and uh, Paul Dacre being the uh, longtime editor of the Daily Mail, uh, in as chairman of Ofcom. And then, of course, when that was blocked, in effect, he put in Michael Grade, who is a now a crossbench peer, but obviously has conservative views, uh, in charge. Do you think that damaged Ofcom?
4: I do. And I, I think it's a huge shame, the politicisation of Ofcom, which... which as I say, was created 20 years ago. It is probably one of the most trusted regulators in the world, which is is saying something. There are other countries which have looked at what we've done. It was one of the very first converged regulators, and it was set up to be wholly independent of of government and of political influence. And I think this, first of all, we had the the nonsense about Paul Dacre, and you, you really couldn't get anybody more sort of, uh, with more trenchant views and had expressed trenchant views about the about the media in charge. That was derailed. But instead, we got someone else who quite clearly who then sat on the conservative benches was quite clearly a conservative. Uh, and and I think that was unfortunate. Now, we, we have had political appointees before. And I, I think it's fair to say this. And Labour did the same when Ofcom was created in the 2000s. But these were never people who kind of wore their political colors on their sleeve in a way that I think Gray does. And the way in which Ofcom was run um, from the chief executive downwards never appeared to be so overtly political. And I think this is the problem now that it undermines our faith in a regulator that actually has had a fantastic reputation over most of its 20 years. And I I really hope, assuming that uh, there is a new government over within the next 12 or 15 months, that the new government will do something to restore our trust in Ofcom, not by simply putting its own political place person in charge. The
1: Communications Act, Steve, is now 20 years old, passed before YouTube, before Twitter, before Facebook before Google had really taken root. It's too late, isn't it? I mean, it's too late to put the genie back into the bottle. Don't we need a new media act? I know that there's a rather pallid media act announced in the King's speech, but don't we need a new media act that reflects the reality of today's
4: media landscape? I'm not sure we do. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to put the genie back in the bottle. I think we can actually celebrate the diversity of different online platforms. You know, if people want to get stuck in their filter bubbles, they can do that on on Twitter or X, as we now have to call it, on TikTok, on Instagram Reels, whatever. There are plenty of opportunities to indulge our own opinions. And, you know, either get into kind of online fistfights or kind of revel in lots of likes and reposts. But the point is, what are we going to do about finding out the truth, finding out the truth of what's going on in the world, the truth about what's going on in this country and being given the opportunity to develop our own opinions and views in a dynamic democracy, which is based on factual information. And doing that within an environment that is trusted, which is properly moderated. And I, I think, as I said, I, I think it's actually even more important in this kind of environment. Not that we try and suppress the diversity of views on social media. That's fine. But that we have a space. We have a protected space. We can trust that those who are the gatekeepers, if you like, are doing what Parliament intended, which was to give us a whole range of views within that trusted space.
1: Steve, thanks so much for coming and
4: talking to us today. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: I think if you think about the the information ecosystem that we live in today, which is, especially with younger people, dominated by social media, where we know there's a, a tide of inaccuracy and hate-filled stuff, the role of impartial broadcasting, regulated broadcasting, becomes more, not less important. So I'm personally quite grateful that there is a space there which is so heavily regulated. Um, I'd like it to be more regulated. I, I'd like Ofcom to be doing its job, not sleeping at the wheel. Uh, so I'm, I'm rather on the on the Barnett side of not seeing why we should rip up all the rules in the way that I think David
0: Elstein uh Thinks is appropriate for the, for the 21st century. Where are you, Lyle? I was sympathetic to David's comment when he said the problem with GB News is it's actually found an audience. And that there is something to that. The problem is that GB News has really tried to drive a coach and 20 horses through the legislation. It hasn't been very subtle. If they'd just gone a little bit a bit, if you like, towards the LBC model where you do have some other views. It's just so overwhelmingly of the same where they're coming from and with all the Conservative MPs talking to each other. It just seems to me there, they need to dial it back a bit. I'm certainly not in favour of shutting it down. I think that would be an enormous mistake.
1: No, I'm completely, I mean, I listened to to LBC uh, on my cycle into work And I get the end of Nick Ferrari and I get the beginning of James O'Brien and they perfectly complement each other. But what GB News has done is to have 10 Nick Ferraris. And that seems to me like they're having a joke. They're having a laugh at the expense of Ofcom.
0: Yeah, I worry about Ofcom having 14 cases. It's a bit like all those cases are done against Donald Trump. Here I am in New York, just a few blocks down from Trump Tower. I think if we just had two cases, which were really laser-like focused on misbeconduct, that would be um, a bit more credible. It does feel a little like um, Ofcom's employing 14 sledgehammers.
1: Before we finish this week, Lionel, I want to ask you about Willis, or as we have to call him, uh, Sir William Lewis, uh, who was rumoured a couple of weeks ago to be trying to buy the Telegraph, but now he's got a big new job in Washington.
0: He's the new publisher uh, and CEO of the Washington Post. He's running the business side. It's a very important job, and he's likely to have to do a quite serious restructuring, saving money. Washington Post uh, reported to be on course for losing as much as $100 million a year. Now, I've known William for, or he was definitely Will in those days, for uh, more than 20 years. He succeeded me as news editor of the Financial Times in 2000. And he was a great reporter. He's a man of swagger, uh, a very good reporter, made his name on Wall Street when he broke a huge merger between Exxon and Mobile, the biggest uh, oil merger at that time. And he, we got it was a clean scoop. And I remember arranging between Will and Robert Thompson to actually delay publication on Thanksgiving until the afternoon so that all our rivals the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times would have their turkey's um, meals disrupted in the most brutal fashion by the FT and Will Lewis. So uh, it'd be interesting what he's done. He worked a long time with Robert Thompson at News Corp. He was CEO of Dow Jones. He was editor of the Daily Telegraph, ran the expenses scandal. Very experienced journalist but he's not a washingtonian he's a new yorker uh, so he's going to have to adapt a bit
1: the whole thing will rise and fall on whether he gets on with bezos and whether he can act as a as an intermediary between this enormously rich billionaire and the newsroom bezos has just announced he's cutting 250 jobs that would be small change to him but he obviously feels it's important that the washington post wipes its face what what did you make of his role at news when he was really part of the cleanup squad after Phone hacking. There were different views, weren't there? There were a lot of the Sun journalists can barely bring themselves to mention his name because he handed over hundreds of millions of emails to the police. He was doing Murdoch's bidding, and he was rewarded with a job at Dow Jones. Was he behaving in a completely straight way, or uh, was he a company man?
0: Very much the company man. I mean, at that point, he was essentially having to do all the dirty work. And he decided it won't be uh, what Nixon called the modified limited hangout at Watergate. He literally hung out everything and a lot of the journalists or some of the people to dry as well. So he did, it was a dirty job. Uh, it was a dirty business and he did it. Um, and he got his reward. I would say Will's great strength is that he's a people person. He's very good at ho, ho, ho. Uh, he would have liked his sunny optimism and can do um, approach to everything will have gone down well with jeff bezos he's i could imagine those two getting on quite well actually although will probably needs to spend a bit more time in the gym
1: <laughs> unkind uh well he's one of three brits now running uh major american institutions we've got M- mark thompson running cnn we've got emma tucker running the wall street journal it'll be fascinating to see how they all do Also out now is the Prospect podcast, and this week I've been speaking to Lord Peter Ricketts. Peter was the chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee under Prime Minister Tony Blair and a retired British senior diplomat. During our in-depth discussion, Peter told me how he thought the next phase of the Israel-Hamas war will play out.
5: I think we will see pauses beginning any time now to allow a degree of increase in humanitarian supplies and uh, injured people out. Uh, I don't think that there's, uh, it's possible for Israel to go on defying particularly America indefinitely. I think we're probably still weeks away from a ceasefire. And even if there is a ceasefire, it's going to be a very fragile and uneasy one, especially if Israeli forces remain in military occupation of Gaza.
1: One of the pertinent thoughts we covered was the role of the US in brokering a peace and the significance of that role, particularly with a US election on the horizon.
5: How America plays this crisis, how it comes out of it, can it uh, succeed in at least influencing matters towards a ceasefire and also how it comes out of the war in Ukraine? I think that will really determine how the world looks in terms of national security for decades to come, because either America will show itself still active and effective as one of the major players in trying to limit the consequences of conflict around the world, or a, a nation that has failed to do so, and perhaps under a future Republican presidency, retreats further from any sense of international leadership, which really does leave us in a world where might is right. Um, and, and small states around the world need to feel
1: quite anxious about that. That's the Prospect Podcast. Follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you've got any questions about the media, please email them to mediaconfidential at prospectmagazine.co.uk and we'll be answering a few of them on a future episode.
0: Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Danny Garlick.
1: Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts with new episodes every Thursday.
0: And we're on Twitter slash X2 media conf pod Donald you need to go
1: off and have your breakfast to the listeners, thank you for listening don't forget to check out the November edition of Prospect Magazine which is uh, on the streets now, read it in app online and in print uh, and with Prospect Magazine, all one word, Uk updated with new stories daily